Welcome to The Secret to Successful Development Projects, a podcast series from Muckle LLP. In this series, we'll look at how to get set for success as we tackle the key things you need to get right on a development project in bite-sized chunks. You can find out more about what we'll be covering at muckle-llp.com slash development success. This time around, we'll be looking at project sites. Hi, I'm Joanne Davison, and I'm a partner in the education team here at Muckle. Whilst I'm sometimes involved on the periphery of development projects, advising on things such as governance and commercial issues, I am no expert. And so I'm delighted to be joined by colleagues, Jim Armstrong, who is a partner in the real estate team, and Richard Nixon, an associate. Um, Thank you for for joining me, Richard and James. Um, In this session, we're going to be looking at preparation and the importance of of good preparation in in relation to development projects. Um, So I'm going to launch straight into some questions for you both. Um, So firstly, when buying a development site, should I be looking to use an option agreement or a conditional contract? Um, James, could, could you pick up this one? Uh, I can, yeah. Thanks, Joe. Um, uh, uh, the answer to this question probably depends on what, um, as buyer, you're trying to achieve. Uh, there's often a bit of a misconception that option agreements are, are more friendly to the buyer and allow a greater degree of flexibility. Uh, that can be true, uh, but it's it's definitely not always the case. Uh, the major difference between an option and a conditional contract is, obviously, under an option, the buyer can never be forced um, to acquire uh, there is one exception to that, but um, for, for the purposes of this answer, we're going to stick to what's called a call option, which is the ability for a buyer to choose whether or not he wants to acquire a piece of land, usually under a conditional contract. Um, if the conditions under that contract are satisfied, then the buyer is required to purchase the property. Um, quite often, historically, options have been used for speculative developments. So they gave a, develop- a developer or a buyer a longer period of time um, to to get planning permission for an area of land and buy it. Um, and they weren't placed under such stringent timescales to progress a planning application. The quid pro quo for that was normally that the buyer had to pay um, an option fee, usually um, some thousands of pounds um, to allow the landowner some compensation for tying up the land for that period. Things seem, I think things have changed a little bit in that respect. And options have become um, slightly more onerous on buyers so that actually the difference between an option and a conditional contract has narrowed significantly. Usually under an option, the developer is still required to um, progress planning. He's quite often required after he's obtained planning to tell the landowner very quickly whether or not he's happy with it. And he's usually then under timescales to um, serve a notice to determine what the price will be and then under fairly stringent timescales to exercise the option. That's not always true, um, but more and more we are seeing that. So the differences between the two have actually become um, significantly narrower. It, 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 you might also think that under an option, uh, the developer has more flexibility to acquire the land whenever he wants, regardless of where he's got to with the planning process. Again, that's not always true. And actually, um, where the purchase price is going to be determined by reference to, uh, for example, open market value, um, that's just not going to be possible uh, where a planning commission needs to be obtained to actually generate the value that the landowner wants. Um, so, uh, the key fundamental difference is an element of choice for buyer. Uh, but actually, what I would say is that the planning process has become so expensive and cumbersome 
Um, that usually once a buyer's gone through the planning process and obtained a planning permission, he wants to buy the land because otherwise his investment is is simply lost. And, and actually the benefit of an option agreement under those circumstances is fairly limited. Um, so for me, um, looking from a developer's perspective, um, the, really the most important um, circumstances uh, where an option agreement might be useful is something that is still a bit more speculative that might take 5, 10, 15 years to, to generate a return. Uh, maybe where a bit of land isn't currently in, in a local plan, so it might be green belt, and it might take 15 years to extract it from the green belt. Under those circumstances, an option agreement is, um, is probably the vehicle which we'd use. Um, of course, it's going to cost the developer because if a landowner is going to tie up his land for 10, 15, 20 years, he's going to expect some compensation. Um, if it's a site which has got good planning prospects and which a developer really wants to progress, um, a conditional contract is probably, probably what we'd look at. Um, I don't know, Richard, whether you've got any thoughts from a landowner perspective. Yeah, certainly. I mean, I definitely agree with, with your assessment, James, that actually the two are, are moving closer together. Um, options being more stringent, as you said, and conditional contracts tending to have longer lists of conditions attached to them. So the benefit for a conditional contract, if you're the landowner, is to think, okay, tick off one, two, and three on this list, and then the, buy the buyer developer has to buy the site. You'd usually either be fixing the price or putting in a mechanism based on you know, how many acres they get planning for or how many units, houses, for example. Um, you get a planning consent to build, uh, and then you know, multipliers, deductions, lots of additional complexities, but ultimately something that you can calculate. Um, the lists of conditions tend to now get so long um, because of the stringentness of the planning uh, process and also things like availability of funding um, that conditional contracts become almost options a lot of the time. Um, you might think you've got a lot of certainty, but perhaps you don't. Also tend to find conditional contracts because of the long discussion on what the conditions are tend to be a bit more cumbersome to negotiate. Whereas with an option, if you accept the sort of overarching principle that buying the site is optional, but the developer has already spent tens or hundreds of thousands on getting to this point, so they probably will if it's viable, that can be a simpler legal process. Yeah, and I think you're right in what you say about um, conditional contracts becoming options. We act for a number of major house builders and um, usually whether or not for example, the planning permission is satisfactory under a conditional contract is determined by reference to a set of unacceptable conditions. Uh, so conditions stipulated by the developer, which if imposed on a planning permission, make the consent unsatisfactory. They can run to pages and pages um, and the developer is not really worth his salt if he can't find a way out, if he ultimately doesn't want to buy a property. So as a landowner, the idea that you've got a developer tied in um, to, to buy your site on satisfaction of the conditions might be true in practice. Uh, sorry, in reality, but in practice, uh, it often doesn't work out that way. That's really interesting, and it's interesting to hear about that shift between the between the two. So, moving on, when we're looking at the the, the title to a site, what are the key things to to consider at an early stage? You know, what what are the key tips for for getting that that good preparation in? James, do you want to pick up this one from from your point of view? Yeah, I mean, for me, this falls into two categories. And the, the first is physical factors. And the second one is legal factors. Now, I mean, Richard will probably agree, we don't get out to see sites as often as we might like, just because it's not economically viable. And with all the tools we've got at our disposal, we don't really, we don't really need to. It is useful where possible, but 
Google Earth is, is a good tool for identifying all the physical factors that might affect a site. And there's so much you can see immediately. So, for example, you'd be looking at title plans to determine whether uh, legal boundaries follow field boundaries. Um, quite often, architects will just go off and use field boundaries to, to, to plot out developments. So it wasn't unknown in the past for house builders to build houses on land they hadn't bought, simply because the architect had followed a field boundary rather than a legal boundary. So that's quite an easy thing to check. Um, checking whether there are indicative footpaths crossing the site, which shows public usage, um, is useful. Um, the more evidence of public um, the public using the site has a greater likelihood of objection, perhaps. Uh, similarly, the proximity to other housing, which again would mean objections were more likely. Uh, proximity to water, particularly at the moment, fl flood risk is a, a huge topic. Um, and if it's obvious that your site is close to a river or a stream, that's something you can pick up quite quickly. It's not something we as lawyers can do much about, but it's something you can flag to, um, to, to the developer. And it's something they should be aware of. Another factor to look at would be, particularly if the property bounds other residential properties, whether there's been encroachment into the site, people will often steal extra garden um, and enclose it. And once they've done that for a period of time, it's very difficult to get it back off them. That might not be clear from the title plans, but it might be clear from a simple, simple Google Earth examination. Um, I, I think the second um, category of um, things to look at is legal factors. And that's a simple review of the title. Um, you can usually um, tell very quickly whether there's anything fundamental which is going to have an impact on, on the development. So the first thing to look at is the class of title. So is it freehold? Is it absolute title? Um, if it's not absolute title and it's a possessory title, for example, founded on adverse possession, it's not great for development. Indemnity insurance, which I think we might be coming on to next, um, is a potential solution to that, but it's, it's not a perfect remedy. Um, any areas of unregistered land, um, any areas of third party land. So, for example, if, um, if it's obvious there's third party land lying between your site and the highway, you might be left with an island site without access, which is obviously important. Um, if it appears the services, when we get our utility searches through, um, aren't uh, likely to come into the site directly from a highway and there's third party land needed to connect to those that's something that we could tell probably relatively quickly again we're not technically qualified we we, we can't advise on the um, technicalities of connection but sometimes it's quite obvious where the services are going to originate from um, and then there's four or five other things which are obvious usually from looking at the title what especially in the northeast what is a mine, mines and minerals exception which applies to almost every site uh, usually uh, results in either the church commission or indemnity insurers making significant amounts of money um, the second point would be any restrictive covenants. So if we know we're going to carry out a residential development, we need to be looking for anything on the title which might preclude that. Um, if there is anything, we need to be looking at when it was created and who the beneficiary might be so we have an idea as how to deal with it. Uh, and I guess the last thing is any restrictions on the title which prevent disposal, especially if we're looking to acquire the site. Uh, they might indicate there's some overage, which might mean a previous landowner might still be entitled um, to some additional uh, recompense if planning permissions obtained. Um, it might mean there's a charge on the site, uh, which might make the structure of the transaction difficult if there's no element of security involved um, in our transaction. And they're all things, it sounds like there's a lot of stuff, but that's all stuff that we could probably tell very quickly within half an hour of seeing a Google Earth image and seeing the title. Um, if you can clear off all of those things, uh, then you can go into a more in-depth review of the title and you start to get into into the intricacies. Um, Richard can probably pick up from here. 
Uh, thanks, James. Yeah, really. I mean, it's just uh, I suppose share a couple of, of horror stories. We've we've had various sites which have which have fallen over because of of this stuff. The classic one is there's a bit of a gap between the the edge of the adopted highway and where the uh, the, the site starts. Typically, that might even have just been where there was highway verge or a, maybe a drainage ditch, something like that. A couple of meters is all it takes. Probably less than that, really, uh, to to mean that you don't have an access. Um, even if you can cover that with insurance is sometimes the way it's difficult when you try and get your highways taken over by the local authority or when you want to put your services in, if there's a gap where nobody knows who owns it. Uh, we've had issues where there've been rights of way over, over sites that were on very defined routes. Um, and then you say, well, that's not where we're putting the roads. In fact, there's no roads which exist in, in, in that pattern, uh, but the rights are still there and technically they, they can't, can't be ended. Um, if you're doing mixed use development sites as well, just look out for the kind of historic covenants, things like restrictions on alcohol sales. I had a huge development down in London years ago, which very nearly went, went aboard it because um, they, they were going to put a supermarket on it. There was a restriction going back about 110 years to benefit a brewery that no one else could sell alcohol in that whole area, the three square miles. Um, and the, the, the retail owners needed needed alcohol sales. That used to be a really commonly imposed covenant back before there were kind of planning restrictions, and these can still bind. The sort of intricacies that James mentioned sometimes is is tracing it through. Um, you know, is this still enforceable? Who might have the benefit of it? Is that practical to to get a release from? If it was one person or say the local authority, if they were involved, maybe that might not be so difficult, but if the land that benefited has, has sort of been fragmented and sold off over time, you could have hundreds of beneficiaries. The, that London example had 700 different beneficiaries uh, that could any one of them who didn't like the supermarket owner um, could have potentially enforced that if they'd had a bit of money or, you know, a bit of, bit of free time. Um, I think really in terms of fixing it probably brings us on to our, our final question. So I'll hand back to you, Joe, for that. <laughs> Thanks, Richard. Um there are a number of, of risk areas there that, that you've both mentioned, and, and as James mentioned, insurance is is an option. But Richard, is is insurance always the solution, or does it have its own limitations? Yeah, it, it definitely has its limitations, and, and it's not it's a solution, but it doesn't actually fix the problem. Um, sort of bit of history: title insurance grew up in the US, where a lot of titles were quite tenuous and in some cases literally staked claims in in the old western tradition um, and then it you know you couldn't actually evidence a proper ownership of that land so insurance grew up as a, a method of protecting people from that uncertainty um, it, it's slightly different to for example buildings insurance which you renew every year um, it tends to be a one-off policy of insurance that you would place for example you're buying a development site there's a hundred year old covenant on it no one can figure out who might benefit from it but the risks clearly still exists so you place a policy of insurance for low risk the cost will be pretty pretty minimal compared to your overall spend you might be looking at um, several hundred or a few thousand pounds for a policy covering development site if you've got something that's a bit chunkier or a bit more topical mines and minerals as james mentioned never really used to be an issue but probably in the last 10 years it's really become much more highlighted and that is something that, that the costs are larger because the, the risk of a claim is larger and it is known that some individuals in different parts of the country who have those particular interests do actually pursue them um, and do enforce them. 
So the cost there, you'd probably be looking into the several thousands or even tens of thousands. But if you're covering a multi-million pound development scheme, it's actually still not a particularly large amount of money in the grand scheme of things. Now, as I said, it doesn't actually fix the problem. It doesn't mean the covenant goes away. You haven't paid anybody off. But what it does do is give you a, a sort of fighting fund. If someone comes along with a claim later, you're insured typically up to the full value of the development. And that provides a sum of money that could either pay compensation to somebody who has suffered some kind of loss because of your actions or pay them off to settle a claim or to compensate you for the fact that your site might have gone down in value because you now can't build whatever it is that you want. Crucially, and the thing that matters the most, particularly to house building developers, is that benefits people who succeed you in the title, your successors, tenants, people that buy houses from you, and crucially, their banks. So basically, you've built your houses and you can sell them. And the policy will tick a box for uh, what's called the Council of Mortgage Lenders CML Handbook, which will allow the plot buyers conveyances to go, yes, everything's absolutely fine. Send the mortgage paperwork off and somebody gets to buy the house of their dreams. Um, that's really the end result that the developer is looking for you know do they end up with a saleable product at the end of the day and that's a way to unlock it the great benefits to it are that it's pretty certain if you can get an offer of cover then that offer of cover will remain generally speaking unless somebody puts in something at, at, a, at a planning stage that's catastrophically bad or you can place insurance before you've even gone into a planning process so essentially before you've Put your head up above the parapet that something's happening on this site um, that will typically be a little bit more expensive but it is often available uh, and it just means that you know nothing, whatever comes out of the woodwork is essentially covered um, at a one-off cost that will then benefit the whole development site and also crucially those buyers um, when the site's been built yeah and i just had a few points to, to note i mean i, I normally uh, categorize insur insurable risks in two categories. One, one is a, an insurance risk, which everybody knows isn't really a risk, uh, but for which insurance is needed to tick the box. Um, so, so historic rights and covenants, which uh, have no known beneficiary, which clearly aren't exercised, um, are, are quite often covered to satisfy funders requirements. But, but actually, everybody knows the risk is, is virtually nil. Um, the other category are actual risks. So more recent restrictive covenants, uh, mines and minerals interests where there's a separate registered title and we know who the owner is. It's quite often the church commission, but quite often it's uh, landed estates. Uh, rights of light uh, is another one, particularly on city centre developments, uh, where there is a genuine uh, risk, which is often covered by indemnity insurance. Um, and I suppose some of the limitations of indemnity insurance um, are that, uh, firstly, it might impose an excess. And sometimes those excesses are quite large, particularly on rights of light uh, policies. The problem with the rights of light um, policy is that uh, by, by its definition, you are building a building next door to another building and infringing on its uh, right to light, uh, which it might have acquired by a long user. They're going to notice that. And, and, and that's the problem. And that's why it's often difficult to get insurance for and it's often extremely expensive. Um, usually, um, developers are amenable to uh, limiting an excess so that it's only payable by the developer and won't bind claims against um, for example, flat buyers in an apartment development, but not always. Um, and the second limitation is that uh, the problem is if, if someone brings a claim um, under a matter which is covered by indemnity insurance, you will lose control of that claim because the insurers will take on the claim and essentially fight it for you. Um, the difficulty there is that um, the insurers are likely to fight hard um, to minimize their payout, and that might take a significant period of time. 
and that creates a couple of problems. Um, one is if you are under timescales to finish your development um, and the insurers make you stop while they fight the claim, uh, that can significantly delay the development and might mean you miss those timescales. Um, and the second problem is that um, it, it means there is a live claim, there's a live issue on the site. And if you're looking to complete disposals, there might be an insurance policy, but you'll still have to disclose to your buyers that there is a problem ongoing that is being resolved. And that can be an issue as well. Um, for that reason, if uh, sometimes a negotiated settlement is preferable because it provides more certainty, you know the issue has been dealt with and it's not going to come back. Whereas with indemnity insurance, you've dealt with the issue for now, but you might just have stored up a problem for the future. Um, I guess the key point to note really though is if you're considering indemnity insurance, um, clearly it's important to have no contact with any potential beneficiary of what you're insuring against because as soon as you make them aware of it, the chances of getting indemnity insurance are finished. Um, so it's a complicated area and there are lots of indemnity insurance providers who um, some are more pragmatic than others. Um, and I think some people feel once they've got cover, they've got cover, which is true. But the important thing is, is it the right cover? Because it's the, the, the small print of the policy differs between insurers. It's important to make sure that what you expect to be covered as your potential loss is actually covered. Gosh, lots to think about there both. Thank you very much. And thank you for listening. You've been listening to The Secret to Successful Development Projects, a podcast series from Muckle LLP. You can find out more at muckle-llp.com slash development success.